Let's pray one more time. Father, we confess that our hearts are naturally resistant to your truth. We have thought, we have known. And then Jesus speaks. And he speaks things that we didn't know. So create in us a receptivity, a willingness to accept what Jesus says about who he is and how your world works and how we ought to respond to you and to him for Jesus' sake. Amen. As you know, June has been designated Pride Month, a public celebration of identifying ourselves by our sexual inclinations. The tone of these parades and other parties is usually vehement, sometimes militant. Anyone who would disagree with or especially disapprove of the celebration of homosexuality and transgenderism is met with what we might call reverse moral outrage. As if expressing moral disapproval of someone else's behavior or inclinations would be to violate a basic human right or could somehow negate someone's personhood. A favorite Bible verse of pride proponents is often Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged. But in preaching through the Gospel of John, we come to another saying of Jesus this morning in John 7, another saying of judgment, where Jesus says, judge not according to appearances, but judge with a right judgment. Judge with a right judgment. What might Jesus mean by that? Our modern world increasingly finds this Jesus, this biblical Jesus, outrageous. Unbelievable to the point of infuriating. He himself has become the target of modern moral outrage. And anyone who associates with this biblical Jesus is also the target of modern moral outrage. Then again, the world has always found Jesus to be outrageous. His own brothers found him outrageous. As a result, many people have tried to take the edge off Jesus, so he is not quite as offensive to the spirit of our age or any other. But that doesn't quite do justice to Jesus. I mean, if you read the Bible, if you read the Gospels all the way through, and you're not just kind of picking and choosing what you want to read about what Jesus said, it's challenging. The way not to be offended by Jesus, though, is not to try to change him, but rather to take him at his word. His teaching really is not his own. He really is from God. His teaching is from God. And if it is from God, 
then we are all obligated to admit our sins, whatever they are, to turn from them, to trust in Jesus for salvation. And yet no matter how good and kind and wise and patient and righteous Jesus is, the world both then and now finds Jesus outrageous for at least six reasons. And those reasons are going to structure our time together in God's Word. Six reasons the world finds Jesus outrageous. But we'll also find that Jesus is not the one who deserves our moral outrage. We are the ones who deserve God's moral outrage. And the only one who can save us from God's moral outrage is the Jesus at whom we are outraged. It's the irony of the text. It's the irony of our own situation before God morally. So if you will, follow along with me in John 7. So I begin by reading John 7, 1 through 5. John 7, 1 through 5. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. The first thing the world finds outrageous about Jesus is his obscurity. The world finds Jesus' obscurity, his nobodiness, his out-in-the-middle-of-nowhere-ness outrageous. Jesus' own brothers don't understand that Jesus is not welcome in Jerusalem. The reason he's staying out in Galilee in the first place is that the Jerusalem elites want to execute him as a Sabbath breaker because he healed the paralytic by the pool on the Sabbath and then told the healed paralytic to carry his own cot. So both the healing and the counsel to carry his own cot were contrary to the Sabbath in John 5. And they say, hey, you're not a very observant Jew. Moral outrage. You're breaking the law. And you're encouraging other people to break the law off with your head. But for Jesus' brothers, a feast week, like the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles or Tents, would be a prime time for Jesus to get a little good PR. Why don't you go downtown? If Jesus really is doing what he's saying he's doing, then why not go public? But of course, his brothers, if, if you do these things, that's an unbelieving if, isn't it? According to verse 5, they don't believe in him. And since they don't believe in him, they're still part of the world. The people who are taking a defensive stance against Jesus because they are offended against him by what he says about himself and what he does. So their statement's derogatory. Hey, if you were for real, brother, you'd go into town and do your tricks to whip up your base. Show your disciples. 
Why don't you grab some votes? You want to be public? Then go do your thing in public. It's just common sense, right? That's what people do. Show yourself to the world. But all they know is sign faith, sight faith. Go do some more signs so that everybody will believe in them and believe in you. For them, only seeing can lead anyone to believing. How are you going to ever go viral if you never post? Unless, of course, you're a fraud. After all, Jesus is a nobody. He's not just from the same town as them. He's from the same womb. They didn't wear pants back then, but if they did... They'd have said, Jesus, you put your pants on one leg at a time, just like we do. Out here in the middle of nowhere. It is outrageous to Jesus' brothers that Jesus would be the person to do the things that he is claiming to be and do. Unbelievable to the point of infuriating. What are you doing out here in the middle of nowhere if you can do all this stuff? (laughs) Man, I do not get you. And his reluctance to act like the public figure he claims to be only seems to confirm their doubt about him. Jesus' own brothers talked down to him. Now, friend, look at how close you can be to the physical Jesus and not be a Christian and not even realize who he is and actually make fun of him for who he claims to be. You can be this close. Friend, regular attender, listen. You are not as close to Jesus as his own blood brothers were. They grew up with him for 25 years in the same family, in the same town. And yet so far they have not believed. So don't assume that just because you hang around this place and hear the preaching of Christ that you have a saving relationship with Christ. That may not be true of you. Maybe you have fooled us. You see, you can hear Jesus preached. You can see other people trust in him and yet not trust in him yourself. J.C. Ryle said, The mere possession of spiritual privileges never yet made anyone a Christian. You have a privilege here. You've heard the songs, you've heard the prayers, you've heard the readings, you hear the preaching of the word of God, you see the gospel's work in other people's lives in this church, you have the privileges, but doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. All is useless without an effectual and applying work of God to the Holy Ghost, by the Holy Ghost. Examine yourself, friend. Are you in Christ or are you just around him? The world finds Jesus' obscurity outrageous. And this is the complaint still today. You're telling me that some random Jewish peasant born in the middle of nowhere is the son of God, sent from God to be the savior of the world, and I got to trust in him to be right with God? I mean, that's not a new objection. It's not just those far from Jesus in time and space who find his obscurity a stumbling block. Those closest to Jesus in time and space also related to him like that, his own brothers. His obscure claim to transcendence frustrated his own brothers. 
But the objection never changed the truth of who Jesus is or what he would do for us. Jesus is not at all slowed down by this objection, either by his own brothers or by you. (laughs) Jesus was never deterred by that kind of scorn and doubt. He always had his doubters based on his lowly birth, his humdrum humanity. We're going to see him at the feast in just a minute blend into a crowd. But make no mistake, he was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, satisfaction of God's wrath, to endure God's anger at us for our sins, for the sins of all his people. In other words, Jesus endured our moral outrage at him. In his life, in order to endure God's moral outrage at us in his death. You see? That's why he came. You are outraged at the very Jesus who came to die for the moral culpability of your outrage against him. You're wrong. You're mad at the wrong person. Stop trying to change him. He is who he is. And he's right about you and me. Second, the world finds Jesus' disapproval outrageous. The world finds Jesus' disapproval outrageous. Verses 6 to 9. Jesus said to them, to his brothers, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So Jesus' brothers can go up to the feast any time they want. Their time is always here because the world is their oyster. For them... I saw this on one of your t-shirts recently. One of the young people in the church who will remain nameless (laughs) had a t-shirt with the picture of Mr. Rogers on it. And it made me laugh because it said, it's all good in the hood. (laughs) That's funny. Mr. Rogers, it's all good in the hood. That's what it's like for Jesus' brothers in Jerusalem. It's all good, man. I can go there anytime I want. Because the world cannot hate them because they're part of the world. They're the world's own. But the world does hate Jesus. And why is that? Before we ask why, what world is this that we are talking about? hmm? Which world hates Jesus? Is it Babylon? Is it Egypt? Is it Nineveh? Is it some pagan nation that worships a different god? No. It's the religious world. It's Jerusalem. That world, the world of the Jerusalem religious moral elites, hates Jesus. His brothers had just said, show yourself to the world, meaning go to Jerusalem, do your tricks for feast week. The problem, Jesus says, is that it is that world, the religious Jerusalem world, that is 
not morally or spiritually neutral to him. They hate him. They're not on his side, and they're not just neutral towards him either. The world is not a neutral place, sitting comfortably between good and evil, truth and error, faith and unbelief, fact and fiction, just waiting for the right evidence to persuade them in the right direction. That's not true of the world. It's not neutral. That wasn't even true of Jerusalem in Jesus' day, much less is it true of Chicagoland in our day. And because the world is not a spiritually or morally neutral place, what his brothers don't realize is that belief in Jesus is not merely an empirical issue. It's not just an issue of having the right proof or evidence. It's not just an issue of let me test it and see. Let me see it. Give me some evidence. Give me something to look at. It's a spiritual issue. The world does not just need empirical proof or visible confirmation of miracles to put them over the edge to trust in Jesus. It needs more than that. The world, not just the secular world, but the self-righteous world, hates Jesus. The Jerusalem elites hated him because he healed a paralytic on the Sabbath and then told him to carry his cot home. In other words, Jesus did show himself to the world when he healed the paralytic. That's why he can't go back into town. Because what did they do? When he showed himself to this world, the world plotted his murder. And why does Jesus say the world hates him in verse 7? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. That's in the Bible. You can't cut that out. The world finds Jesus' moral disapproval of it outrageous. Unbelievable to the point of infuriating. The world thinks its way of being moral and religious is better than Jesus' way of being moral and religious. Isn't this what you encounter at work day by day by day? Isn't this what you see in your neighborhood? Isn't this what you see in your own heart, if you're honest? Every time you want to sin, my way's better. You can't possibly disapprove of me for this when this desire for this sin is so strong in my heart the world thinks its way is better than Jesus way and if Jesus doesn't like it then the world will crucify him for it That's why there's a timing issue here in when Jesus can go to Jerusalem. He can't go yet because if he goes too soon, they'll kill him before his mission from God, the Father, is complete. Jesus' teaching and example testifies to the world's wickedness and its need of Jesus to die for its sin in order to be reconciled to the world, to God. In other words, Jesus testifies that the world's works deserve God's moral outrage. And yet all the while, the world, humanity and rebellion against God, thinks its works are better than Jesus' works, and its justice is better than Jesus' justice, and its morality and religion is better than what Jesus offers. The world doesn't think it needs Jesus. The world thinks it needs to kill Jesus. Now, Jesus thinks he needs to die too, 
not for his sin, but for ours. Jesus is not ready yet to go to Jerusalem because his time has not yet been fulfilled. That's the language of God's sovereignty. God is in control of Jesus' days and hours. So Jesus tells them to go up to Jerusalem on their own, but he's not going with them. The difficulty in verse 8 is how Jesus puts it. I'm not going up to this feast because my time has not yet been fulfilled. It sounds like he's not going at all. And then he goes. But John explains Jesus' meaning in verse 10. He went up not publicly like his brothers, verse 10, but in private. That's how he's not going up. He's not going up with the family town caravan to make a big scene. He's going up privately. And he's not going up yet. He's going up later. But the world still finds Jesus' moral disapproval outrageous. You're telling me Jesus disapproves of my lifestyle? Man, I'm the nicest person on the block. In fact, I'm probably nicer than most of you. I'm nicer than most Christians I know. I don't go around expressing my moral disapproval of other people. I'm nicer than that. He disapproves of my sex life. He thinks I get too angry at my kids. He must not know my kids. He thinks my way of honoring God isn't good enough? That is outrageous to the world, that Jesus would think that. Unbelievable to the point of infuriating. Jesus' moral disapproval of us elicits the world's moral outrage at him and at those who preach him. If Jesus is telling us that we're going to hell, then the world says, him first! Isn't that what they meant by crucifying him? Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And the same is true today. J.C. Ryle said they could have tolerated his opinions if only he would have spared them their sins. The real cause of many people's dislike to the gospel is the holiness of living which it demands. People object to Christianity because it calls us to change our minds about our sins, our favorite ones, the ones that we use to identify ourselves, to change our lives, to come into line with God's law and His moral expectations of us. In other words, it calls us to repent, to quit thinking our sins are okay, to quit thinking God is okay with our sins, and to start asking God how He would have us change. The reason people don't like absolute truth is that it implies the existence of an absolute morality, which we know we cannot uphold on our own, and we know we don't want to uphold on our own, and we can't even intend to uphold on our own in good conscience apart from the Spirit of God moving in our hearts and giving us new desires and inclinations. What the world still does not see is that Jesus came not only to testify that we are sinful, but also to take the punishment for our sins on the cross, in our place, so that he might reconcile us to God and send his spirit into our hearts to make us willing and able to love God's truth and righteousness, to obey his law more and more, and to agree with his assessment. Yes, I know, I am sinful. That's sin. The way I like to even identify myself, that's sinful. 
and I need to change, and I can't, but God can change me, and he will. Jesus came to endure God's moral outrage at us, in our place, for our sins. Today's world weaponizes the word hate. Jesus says, the world hates me. And he means it. And he has every right to say that. And when we read signs that say, hate has no home here, or stop hate, we would very much like to assume the best. But what is meant by those phrases, more often than not, is that moral disapproval of common sins has no home here. Stop moral disapproval of the sins people find irresistible. The mentality behind those slogans is that all moral disapproval of others must invariably imply personal hatred on the part of the one who disapproves, directed towards the one who is disapproved of, which immediately, of course, victimizes the one who is disapproved. And in a therapeutic culture, if you can prove that you have been victimized, you are right, no matter how wrong you are. But who hates who here in John 7? It's the world, humanity, in rebellion against God that hates Jesus. Why? Not because Jesus hates the world. Are you really going to say Jesus hates the world? It is hiccup worthy (laughs) to say that Jesus would hate the world. We should hiccup at that. Can't even take it seriously. It's not because Jesus hates the world. It's because Jesus testifies that our works are evil and the world willfully misinterprets all moral disapproval as hate in order to claim victim status and justify itself in what Jesus disapproves. That is why the world hates Jesus. And therefore, the very homes who live by the slogan, hate has no home here, are the ones where Jesus' moral disapproval is actually what's resented most. The world hates Jesus because he testifies that its works are evil, and so the only thing worthy of moral outrage today is not immorality, but rather moral disapproval of someone else's immorality. That is what is unbelievable to the point of infuriating. But, but, do I hate my children when I disapprove and discipline his lying, his stealing, his temper tantrums, his disrespect for his mother? Do I hate him when I disapprove of him for those things? Of course not. I love my child when I do that. Do I hate my friend when I disapprove of his substance abuse or his cheating on his wife 
with shoplifting? No. I testify to his works that they are evil, not because I hate him, but precisely because I do not hate him, because I love him, and I want to love him enough to correct him, and because I want to save him from the consequences of his own love for his own, literally, damned sins. I don't want him to experience that. It is childish and devious for people to accuse Christianity of hatred simply because it disapproves of the world's sins. That's the kind of rhetoric my six-year-old uses. You hate me because you won't let me have a whole box of ice cream sandwiches. No, six-year-old. I don't hate you because I'm not letting you do that. What is truly hateful is weaponizing the language of hate against all moral disapproval of sin. That is hateful. The world hated Jesus for disapproving of its sin, and the world hates Christians when we do the same thing. And the way it hates us today is by accusing us of hating them. And the world has a word for that. That's gaslighting. Third, the world finds Jesus' theology outrageous. In verses 10 to 18, the world finds Jesus' theology outrageous. But after this, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is that one? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. He's deceiving them. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, midweek, Jesus went up into the temple, began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied implicitly under one of us? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine. But his who sent me, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Verse 10 to 14, Jesus now goes up to the feast on his own terms in God's sovereign time, but under the radar. Jewish elites are assuming he's going to be there as an observant Jew, And since he still hasn't appeared by the midweek, they're wondering where he is. And they want to hunt him down. They're not looking for a conversation. They're looking for a kill. And they think they're righteous in doing it. And that's choking the public atmosphere in verses 12 to 13. As Jesus is under the radar in Jerusalem, people are whispering about him under their breath, under their radar, quietly debating who Jesus is. Jesus' brothers wanted Jesus to revive in Jerusalem publicly, but the elites have poisoned the well against him so badly, nobody else can even speak approvingly of him in the open for fear of the Jews. Sounds a lot like the public atmosphere today, actually. 714, midweek of the seven-day feast, Jesus gets up, starts teaching in the temple. The religious elites hear him, and they're shocked in verse 15. They are not just amazed in a kind of pleasantly surprised way. Oh, wow. Listen to that. I'm learning from this Jesus. Wow. That is not, <laughs> that's not what they're feeling. They're offended 
that he would have the audacity to teach in the temple as if he were a formerly educated rabbi under one of their accredited seminaries, which you had to be if you wanted to teach in the temple. How'd you get in this classroom at the front? How does he know? That's their attitude. They're questioning the source of his knowledge and teaching, especially of his knowledge and his ability to teach Scripture. They already hate him for his moral disapproval, and now they resent him for knowing and teaching Scripture in the temple as if he had the right to be there when he never studied under one of their rabbis. This is absolutely vexing to them. Who does he think he is? Man, he gets under my skin. But I kind of don't want to debate him in public either. Where did this guy get his MDiv? Who ordained him? But in verse 16, Jesus tells him who his teacher is. My teaching is not my own, but from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know about the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. That logic feels upside down, doesn't it? feels backwards. feels like you got the cart before the horse. Even though Jesus has not learned his teaching from rabbinical schools, that doesn't mean he's making up for it as he goes. If Jesus were speaking from himself, then he'd be seeking himself. But since Jesus' teaching comes straight from the Father who sent him, Jesus is seeking the Father's glory. He acts as the Father's ambassador. God the Father is Jesus' teacher. Now again, notice this move Jesus makes in verse 17. The key to knowing the source of Jesus' teaching is what you want. Get a load of that. The key to knowing the source of Jesus' teaching is what you want. If anyone wants to do God's will, then he will know the source of Jesus' teaching. Man, that seems like it's got the cart before the horse, doesn't it? How can I want Jesus' teaching until I know what it is? How can I want to do God's will unless I know what it is? Jesus said, nope, you got it backwards. See, we think i got to know before I want to do. That's not the case in our relationship to God and His will and His Jesus' teaching. Our desires must change. He must change your desires. Your heart, your will must change before we can know that Jesus and His teaching really are from God. And this is standard Protestant teaching. Listen to pastor theologian George Smeaton from the 1800s on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It is the state of the will, your will. In other words, the state of the heart that either illuminates or darkens the understanding in its spiritual or moral views. Your sin and your commitment to it make it impossible for you to understand what Jesus is saying or where his teaching comes from. And the relation between the two, the state of the heart and the understanding of moral views, the relation between the two is not like ordinary knowledge according to which we must first know a thing before we love it. For on the contrary, the secularized mind must first love divine things with a spiritual relish, with a spiritual savor, Relish there doesn't mean pickle sauce. Relish means spiritual taste, savor, delight. 
We must first love divine things with a spiritual delight before we fully know them. Hence, it is not the intellectual knowledge which determines the conclusions of the will, but conversely, the tendency of the will or of the heart which determines the judgment of the understanding. Your will, sinful because it is, is always going to militate against what Jesus says because you hate him because he testifies that your works are evil. So until you have a taste for Jesus' truth, you're not going to understand anything that he says because you're not going to accept it in the first place. You're not going to like it. You don't have a taste for what Jesus is saying. Translation, the human heart is sinfully biased against trusting God or Jesus because we are biased towards justifying ourselves and our own sins. Why does the world hate Jesus? Because he testifies his works are evil. When the world defends its works as justified. So you will only know that Jesus' teaching is from God when your will is to do God's will. And then, or until then, your will will reject Jesus' teaching as if it were from God. And you will say, no, it's not from God, because I don't like it. Precisely because your will is not to do God's will when Jesus' teaching is God's will. So if that weren't enough, Jesus then adapts their way of referring to him. All throughout, you don't really pick this up in the English, but all throughout they've been referring to Jesus as this guy. If they were Australian, they'd say this bloke. If they were British, they'd say this chap. And if they're American, they'd say this chump. Jesus speaking of himself in verse 18. This one you hate, this one who infuriates and frustrates you, this very one is sent by God, seeking God's glory by teaching God's truth to his own hurt. And so this one is true, and he is not lying to you or being at all unfair to you. There's nothing either false or unrighteous in the one they hope to murder. And this theology of Jesus is still outrageous to the world today. You're telling me that some ancient Middle Eastern Jew is actually the second person of the divine trinity? Come down from heaven in the flesh. You're saying Jesus is God's heaven-sent authorized ambassador, and he has the right to tell me and everybody else what to think about God and the Bible? Yes, that's what we're telling you. That's what Jesus is telling you. You understand us rightly. Isn't that what we all want from God anyway? Why don't you just send somebody from heaven? Well, he did. Just send someone from heaven to tell us what to think, and we'll believe it. Huh. Yes, he's already done that, friend, and we crucified him. And yet, in that very crucifixion, Jesus was loving those who hated him. In fact, he was taking on himself all God's moral outrage against all the sins of all people everywhere who would ever turn away from their sin and self-guided way of living to trust in Jesus' death to save them from the power and penalty of their sins and to reconcile them to God whom they have offended. Sinner, stop being outraged at this idea of God. This is the only God there is. You've got to take him or leave him. You're not going to change him. Stop being outraged at this God and this Christ and his theology. You have no reason to be outraged at him, but he has every reason to be outraged at you. It's our sin against him that's the moral outrage and our rejection of the Savior that he sent to reconcile us to him. That's the outrage. What is outrageous is not God's moral disapproval of you. 
or me. Or what Jesus said about God or about himself. What is outrageous is that God sent his own son into the world to save us from our sins. And we actually sinned against him so badly that we killed him. And we did all that because we didn't want to do God's will. That's what it comes down to. We wanted to do our will. That is what is outrageous. And that is the moral outrage Jesus came to end. He came to end our love for rebelling against God and our sin. And he knows better than we do what is true and right. In fact, he's getting ready to prove his qualification as teacher of the law by engaging his critics with Moses. Verses 19 to 24, the world finds Jesus' morality outrageous. 19 to 24, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, from Abraham, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This case study to prove Jesus is a better teacher of God's word, both in theory and practice, is where the rubber meets the road. You Jews are the stewards of the law given through Moses, yet none of you keeps the law. And the proof is that you're trying to kill me because you find my morality outrageous. They're ready to break the sixth commandment by murdering Jesus because they think he's broke the fourth command by healing someone on the Sabbath. In verse 20, it's the crowd who answers, but Jesus has been talking this whole time to the Jews from verse 15 who were offended by his teaching and who, from Jesus' own perspective, were trying to kill him. So the conversation partner now changes from just the Jewish elites to the crowds who seem to be taking the Jewish elite's side against Jesus. It's not getting better. So the crowd who answers is overhearing this conversation in sympathy with their Jewish elite leaders or their people who are already against Jesus. Either way, it's the crowd now accusing Jesus of having a demon of paranoia. They're gaslighting Jesus. Who's trying to kill you? Uh, You are. As if he's wrong to think that somebody's trying to kill him. Oh, it's all in your head, man. It's all in your head. Nobody's doing that to you. That's gaslighting. When they really are doing it to you. Verse 21, I did one work and you all marvel. Jesus, again, means marvel there, not in the sense of being fantastically impressed, but in the sense of being disturbed, shocked, offended. What? You can't do that. That's how they're marveling. They're outraged. So Jesus is not saying, why are you all so impressed? He's saying, why are you so offended, so angry at what I did? He's he's getting ready to use the word angry in verse 23. The work he's talking about is, again, healing the paralytic by the pool on the Sabbath and then telling him to celebrate by carrying his cot as he walked home on his newly healed legs. First time he would have ever carried that bed. And they say, hey, man, you can't do that. Sit back down. It's the Sabbath. 
So now Jesus is going to engage them on how to interpret and apply the law of Moses in that case. Should they want to break the sixth command because he broke the fourth? Or instead of breaking the fourth commandment, did Jesus fulfill it? Verse 22 to 23, Jesus explains. He's running circles around him. You circumcise a man on the Sabbath. You cut something away from his body on the Sabbath, if necessary. If the eighth day falls on the Sabbath, you're going to circumcise the kid. Right? Right. Why do you do that? To disobey the law? No, to obey the law. So are you breaking the Sabbath or keeping it? I'm keeping it. By circumcising a man on the Sabbath? Yes. Okay, I just want to get that straight. Because I gave a guy his legs back on the Sabbath, and you're ready to kill me. They look at what Jesus did as a moral outrage. When in reality, it's Jesus who should be morally outraged at their moral outrage at him. (laughs) Because of how badly they're misinterpreting and misapplying Scripture. The whole crowd is morally outraged at the wrong thing for the wrong reason. Based on the wrong interpretation and application of Scripture. They're morally outraged at the wrong person. They want to judge him in the sense of condemning him for sin, but their own judgment is impaired because they don't want to do God's will. Jesus' counsel for the crowds, both then and now, is in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Most quoted Bible verse today, not John 3.16, Matthew 7.1, judge not lest you be judged. But that's about hypocrisy. Justifying your sin while you condemn others in theirs. Here, Jesus does command us to judge, to come to right moral evaluations of yourself and others based on a right interpretation and application of God's law. Right judgment. There is such an objective thing as right judgment. What is that? It's Jesus' own judgment. Because God gave him the spirit without measure to a limitless degree, John 3, 34. And that spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, is the same spirit that breathed out scripture in the first place. The spirit that carried along the prophets to write just what God wanted. And therefore, Jesus' interpretation and application of scripture is authoritative. Yet that idea, the authority of Jesus to interpret right and wrong, is still outrageous to many people today. You're telling me that Jesus is always right? about how to understand and apply the Ten Commandments, even when I think I'm the best person I know. And when we find what Jesus teaches about morality and God's law, we're all the more outraged. How could he possibly say that so many people are so sinful, so wrong, so misguided and rebellious as to deserve hell? How can he say that not all my sexual appetites and impulses are right when they're so strong? How could he say that I shouldn't envy other people for what they have when he gave it to them and I genuinely feel that I deserve it way more than they do? But friend, Jesus can in fact say all of this because what he says about himself is true. His teaching really is from God. He is not speaking on his own authority. He is seeking the glory of his Father. There is no unrighteousness or falsehood in Jesus or his judgments. In other words, when Jesus expresses moral outrage 
It is always moral. Whereas with humanity still today, much of our moral outrage is itself immoral. Not all our righteous indignation is actually righteous, and therefore not all of our talk of social justice is really just. The reason is that our judgment is superficial. We only judge by appearances, optics. What does it look like? What does it look like to other people? What looks right? Or better, what makes me look like I'm in the right? What makes me look right? When truly the only thing that really can put us right is Jesus' death as the one who endured God's moral outrage against us. Fifth, the world finds Jesus' humanity outrageous. The world finds Jesus' humanity outrageous. Verses 25 to 30. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. As this whole exchange is happening in the temple, some of the crowds start putting two and two together. Wait a minute, isn't this the guy they were seeking to kill? So why is he still walking and talking in the temple like he owns a joint? Why don't the authorities just arrest him? Surely they're not letting him off the hook because they actually think he's the Messiah. After all, we know where this guy's from. We know his backstory. We know his mama. We know his dad. We know where his little wood shop is. We know his brothers, and we know his brother's opinion of him. But when the Messiah comes, he's going to come out of nowhere. They're probably operating on a tradition we see in Matthew 24, verse 26, where the Son of Man is going to come like lightning from the sky. But that's about his second advent, not his first. Whatever the case, they think they have a local knowledge of Jesus' origin story that no one would ever know about the real Messiah. Yet, of course, there was also the well-known tradition of Micah 5.2 that said the Messiah would clearly come from Bethlehem and from David's line. So you begin to wonder whether the crowd is just trying to find any reason at all to reject Jesus because he's just not what they expected. You see what's going on? One writer put it so well. People used whatever arguments necessary to achieve their predetermined conclusion. I'll just choose this, this tradition over here about he's coming out of the middle of nowhere instead of the Bethlehem thing. And that way we can reject him because we know where he's from. Simple as that. Case closed. But Jesus tells him in verses 28 to 30, I'm not playing cat and mouse with you. You know me. I'm the same person I've always been. I am who I say I am. And if they want to know him for who he is, He's the same person he's always been. He's not playing games. But even if they don't know the Father, Jesus does know the Father, and Jesus came at the Father's command. Then in verse 29, he says something they can't ignore. I know him, for I come from him. He sent me. Now, that's the clincher. I know God. 
I come from God. And that's why they seek to arrest him in verse 30. But oddly enough, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. There's that idea again. His hour had not yet come. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet fully come. All along, Jesus is aware that his life mission is going to go exactly according to plan, to God's plan, all the way down to the hour. And John the evangelist here in verse 30 revels in the irony that even as Jesus' opponents seek to arrest him, they can't lay a finger on him until God's appointed hour for Jesus to die has arrived. All of which emphasizes that the human religious authorities are not in control. God is in control, not only of what happens, but how and when it happens. I think many of us Maybe saying the same thing about the church right now. How are we even still meeting here when the public atmosphere is what it is about Jesus and his morality? I guess our hour hasn't yet come. It is still outrageous to humanity that we are all dependent on this very human Jesus for salvation from our sins and reconciliation to God. We know where he grew up, after all. He was a baby, a little boy, a teen, a young man. His mom was accused of getting pregnant out of wetlock. Yet it was by God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin that he condemned our sin in Jesus' flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. It was in his very humanity at which we are outraged that he endured God's moral outrage in our place in his body, on the tree, at the cross. Sixth and final, the world finds Jesus' destiny outrageous, verses 31 to 36. Yet many other people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? The world finds Jesus' destiny outrageous. Many from the crowd begin to believe in Jesus after a fashion, but they only believe based on seeing the many signs he's done, which John has already taught us is not the kind of faith Jesus is looking for. Jesus doesn't entrust himself to that kind of faith, John 2, 23 to 25. And that kind of faith has already failed to persevere with Jesus in John 6. So you're not going to do another bread miracle like you you, you you did yesterday? I'm out. But when the Pharisees hear these rumblings of faith in verse 32, they send the temple police to arrest Jesus without missing a beat. Jesus, in verse 33 to 34, uses it as a teaching opportunity to warn them he's not going to be around much longer. You better believe why you can. Here in verses 31 to 36, Jesus is talking about his resurrection from the dead and ascension to heaven. And when he says in verse 34, you will seek me and you will not find me, he's saying that one day they will find that they will want to seek him, not to kill him, but for him to save them from God's judgment, from God's moral outrage, 
at their sins. And yet by then, it's going to be too late. That's what he's saying. One day, you will seek me not to kill me, but so that I will have mercy on you. And by then, it will be too late. It's the kind of truth we read elsewhere in Proverbs 1, 26 to 28, where wisdom is crying out to the fool. Because I called and you refused to listen. Because I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me. But I will not answer. They will seek me diligently. But they will not find me. That day's coming. Do you want to know why we take this stuff so seriously? Because verses like that are in the Bible. And Jesus refers to them as if they refer to him. You better believe in Christ before it's too late. He owes you nothing. And none of your moral outrage at his disapproval of you is at all justified. And you will have no argument before the throne of God's judgment. None. Here again, they're the ones trying to arrest Jesus, and yet Jesus is the one who is totally in control. And look how merciful he is in the way he talks to him. Hey, you don't understand. There's a day coming when you're going to wish you had sought me for salvation, and it's going to be too late then. There's no worry in Jesus. Even when they come to arrest him, he's perfectly serene in God's sovereignty. He even warns that soon they're going to be the ones looking to him, not to arrest him, but for him to help them, to save them. It's going to be too late then. Of course, in verse 35, they misunderstand every word of what Jesus says. Why? Because they don't want to do God's will, because they're too intent on killing him. What does he mean? Those sentences can't possibly have meaning. Especially not for us, because we're the most righteous people in town. They only mutter their misunderstandings to each other. They don't even ask him. It's as if they double down on their derision of him. Where does this blowhard think he's going to go that we're not going to hunt him down? Where's he going to go? To Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks? What's he saying about us seeking, not to, seeking him and not finding him? And where I am, you can't come. It all sounds so ridiculous. Literally worthy of ridicule. And if they actually knew what he meant, if it occurred to them that he was talking about his resurrection and ascension to heaven, they would, they'd have been all the more outraged at his sacrilegious pretensions to divinity. And this still seems outrageous to the modern mind today. You're telling me that Jesus died on the cross, but then he... Let me understand. He... Rose bodily from the dead? (laughs) Where he is now reigning as king over God's kingdom in his human body until he himself comes back to make all things new. (laughs) 
outrageous, ridiculous, unbelievable to the point of infuriating. How can you believe that stuff? That is what the modern mind says. But it's not modern at all, is it? It's ancient. That's what the human mind has always said. All the outrage we see today at Jesus' obscurity, at his disapproval, his theology, morality, humanity, his destiny, it's all so first century. You think you're modern for thinking like that? That's old school. Humanity doesn't really come up with new objections to Jesus. It just rehashes the old ones over and over and over and over. Does the modern world hate Jesus? Yes, it does. But so did the ancient world and even the ancient religious world in Jerusalem. Yet that hatred of Christ has never stopped Christianity from growing. And that, oddly enough, is a wonderful encouragement to the churches today. The end of our text shows the Jews entertaining thoughts of Jesus going to the Greeks. And yet after he died and rose from the dead, that's exactly where Jesus' apostles went and took his gospel to the Greeks and beyond to the end of the, of the earth. And guess what? Here we are today believing in Jesus. The world has always found a way to be outraged at Jesus, to consider him unbelievable to the point of infuriating. The world will sadly keep on directing its moral outrage at Jesus long after Pride Month is over. Yet it is this Jesus who took in himself all God's moral outrage over all the sins of all those who will ever turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. And for them, Jesus will continue to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we will keep on proclaiming the biblical Jesus together, the one who took God's moral outrage for us in his death. Because even if the world thinks us outrageous, Jesus said it best, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. Let's pray together. Father, we confess our arrogance at thinking that we have known ourselves and your world and even you better than you and better than your son Jesus who has stood in your counsel who came from you forgive us for acting as if your demands are unreasonable as if your commands are outrageous as if your Christ should not be believed Take away whatever remains of our unbelief. Fill us with faith and with your spirit. With a willingness to do your will so that we would know that Jesus' teaching is from God. For Jesus' sake. Amen.